Hi, Sarah. Hi, Veronica. How are you? I'm doing excellent. 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 Yeah. Excellent is like the ultimate thing you can be. I think, I think so. I'm, I'm, oh, who was that? We have a visitor. Great. I'm so glad Pablo's chiming in. He has a lot of opinions on excellence. Mm -hmm. I believe it. Pablo is Veronica's adorable little corgi for those of you who haven't met Pablo. Haven't had the great pleasure of meeting Pablo. I guess you're just meeting him through sound, which is not his greatest asset. Yeah. Visually is a better way to meet him because he's adorable. We've moved to a new neighborhood in New Orleans and in this new neighborhood, like a couple blocks from the French Quarter. Mm -hmm. So when I walk Pablo... Um, he's coming towards me right now with a frisbee in his mouth. There are a lot of people who are wasted and want to talk about his butt. They just like keep going on and on about his butt. He just looks back at them and like smiles and winks and keeps walking. Like he's got it down. He knows. Mm -hmm. Good. He should. So it's the season finale. Yeah. We're at the old thieves. Ultimate. The ultimate. The penultimate was last time. Now we are at the ultimate grand finale of season two. So much pressure. (laughs) And yet, I'm going to make it low-key and kind of open. Love it. We're going to talk about an artist who I actually really didn't know much about. The reason I'm picking him for this episode of our podcast, which is about the intersection of art and crime... Is talk about who we are just in case. Okay, let's do a little pause. Someone happens to be listening to the very last episode and they haven't listened to any previous episode. I think that's wise, although I imagine most of the listeners know us by now, but let's tell them. Well, guys, so we are two investigators, we do criminal defense investigation, and we each have a background in art, so art galleries, art education museum stuff, art writing, all all manners of art stuff. Yeah, before we both became investigators, first Sarah became one. Um, and then I copied her, essentially. <laughs> um, but we were just totally immersed in the realm of like art stuff. So then we kind of transitioned. But here we are still celebrating our art love. Yeah. So we figured it would be really fun to do a podcast on something that meshes our two seemingly um, very distant worlds of criminal investigation and art. And the perfect intersection was art crime and art heists. We started off with art heists and now we've kind of done a, uh, this season has been a whole salad of crimes. Such a salad. (laughs) It's like a cob salad. It is. It's yeah. It's like you're uh, a really delicious Cobb salad. Of- so good. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what we've been up to. And now we've arrived at the last episode. So I was thinking because what we do is we take turns presenting stories that we're interested in. I thought for our last episode of season two, why don't we talk about the ultimate artist criminal? Who is? In my opinion and... I'm sure there's a lot of debate about this, but we're just going to go with this. It's Caravaggio. Oh, oh, okay. So this is a little weird because it's 16th century artists. And Love we don't Caravaggio, have, by the way. Yeah, he's 
Amazing. Here's a weird thing. Like before I decided to do an episode on him, I was just thinking about how his paintings are so striking. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was making paintings in the 16th century. And anytime I've come across them in museums or on the internet, for that matter, I find them to be very memorable. Like they Mm -hmm. sear an image in your brain. They're grotesque. They're um, beautiful. They're scary. Yeah, very dramatic. There's nothing about his paintings that make you feel calm while looking Mm -hmm. at them. So why not kind of take this moment to explore an artist who was also a criminal like at the same time? And we're going to go into this a little bit more, but who used his artwork to get out of crime sentences. So here's what I was thinking we could do to approach this episode about Caravaggio. One thing that Sarah and I bond on is that the type of investigation we're most interested in is mitigation. I think that's still the case for you, Sarah, right? Yeah, for sure. And you're doing so much mitigation, and I'm doing like some mitigation, but hardly any where I am in New Orleans. Could we explain what mitigation is? Like, just Absolutely, we need to... Ex- yeah. So mitigation, for those of you who maybe haven't heard the term or you're unfamiliar with that realm, mitigation is basically the part of a criminal defense trial where... Let's let's say someone gets someone's on trial and it's a death penalty case. They might get the death penalty, and if they get convicted of a crime, um, the jury gets presented with what's called mitigation, which is parts of their history or parts of their childhood, their life, their um, mental health, any all sorts of things that might might help explain some of the things that happened. Not an excuse, but that just might help the jury understand how things got to where they did. Um, And maybe that's a, you know, this person has schizophrenia or maybe this person has um, they're bipolar and have, you know, were abused as a child or some, there's all different, all kinds of things. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's um, they are intellectually disabled. They're all, all kinds of things. So when you present mitigation, it's a way of kind of humanizing someone and, um, sharing more about their social history. Yeah. And part of what I like about mitigation, besides the type of research that is done for mitigation purposes, which is you kind of explore their entire their entire lives, where they lived, where they moved, who they were exposed to, what towns they were in. Like you just go into a full-on history project for uh, the client. But another thing is that it does expose light on how the mental health aspect of the justice system is really skewed. I think especially now with the way things are, maybe there's more interest in understanding why people go down those roads Mm -hmm. and the lack of resources there are for them beyond those roads in a way. It doesn't justify those roads they took, but it it also doesn't justify the lack of roads there are. Like it's, you know what I mean? For sure. Yeah, I completely agree. And I mean, that's the thing is like in order to, the only real way that we can prevent something from happening is to understand why it happened in the first place. That's the only way you can then start to walk it backwards and say, okay, what things can we do to prevent this from happening? Rather than solely focusing on how do we punish this, you know, the point of mitigation is to study why. And I think the more we do that, the more theoretically, hopefully, idealistically, we can 
see things before they happen or see when someone is, is really mentally unhealthy and needs, you know, needs intervention and needs some help and, um, you know, come in at those moments before anything bad has happened. That's what I think is a like really, really great potential of mitigation is to understand and then hopefully prevent things from happening again. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I have run into people who make the argument and I know we're not doing a podcast on mitigation and why it should exist, but I have run into people who say, well, I know someone who has a psychological whatever and it caused this and that, but they didn't kill anyone. And then typically what I learn is that person had a lot of like financial resources and Mm -hmm. existed in a realm where they weren't also dealing with um, poverty and other components that can exacerbate things. And, and I think what the opposition to mitigation is dealing with most is that they think, oh, well, let's just get rid of people who have problems. But like, it's across the board. Mm-hmm. It crosses through different class systems that in fact, if we have a better mental health situation in place, this will help everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Across the board. So even if you don't care about what's happening in realms that you don't partake in, like this situation, like understanding it and how it works will help people all across the board anyway. Agreed. Um, So with that said, (laughs) I was thinking it'd be kind of cool to approach Caravaggio as a potential client. Love this. Yeah. Um, And even a mitigation client. Mm -hmm. Um, So here we have an artist. He was born in 1571. A long time ago. Longest time ago. He was actually born in Milan. Um, There are other accounts that say he was born elsewhere, but everything I've come across in trying to learn more about him is that he was born in Milan. Big city. Mm -hmm. He had to leave it. Um, His childhood is not well known, like what happened in it. What I do know is that he potentially killed someone and then like in his late teens and then fled to Rome. He had artistic talent and then he honed in on it and became an artist. Like he worked in different, under different other artists, was commissioned to do things. And he like had this incredible skill set that was apparently better than a lot of people he was working alongside. And from what I understand, he recognized that. At the same time, while being an artist in Rome, he had this crazy life where he was, well, drinking and gambling and fighting. And he had a knife at all times with him. And he also became really obsessed with painting real models. Mm -hmm. But the real people that he was painting were prostitutes. So he would hire them. And I don't know all that he would do with them, but amongst those things, he would paint them. Mm -hmm. This was actually unique because at the time that he was painting, a lot of painters were basing their paintings on drawings and not actually live models at all. Right. Meaning what? They were like doing a drawing of of a live model or they were just doing their paintings off of like previous drawings by other artists? Um, from what I understand, it'd be a combination of both, but mm-hmm. when they would actually paint it, so maybe there'd be a sketch. Right. 
done fairly quickly, but when they would paint, it would be no model available during the painting process. Got it. Um, yeah. And a lot of people were painting people who were powerful, biblical characters. The person wasn't standing there the whole time that they were painting. Mm-hmm. But Caravaggio is like obsessed with the person being there while the painting was happening. And in his process, he was really interested in um, a few things. One, the way lighting would work. If, mm-hmm. say, he had natural light or, say, candlelight or whatever it was, kind of spotlighting certain features. He became very known for that. And then another thing is that he would depict their imperfections. So there's so many imperfections in his paintings of people, like lines on their faces, dirt on their bodies, blemishes, all of that. Like it's all in his paintings. That was really unusual for painters at that time to have these like kind of magnificent paintings that also showed so many flaws of humans that were really normal at the time. But it was weird because a lot of paintings that preceded him wouldn't show those ever. Right. They're more like idealistic and he was showing the kind of rawness of humans. Yeah. He went, he like, he rebelled against the idealistic, which was what had been presented before him. Mm -hmm. You know, the Renaissance. However, a lot of people were probably offended originally because like, why would you, why would you paint these flaws or why would you make something ugly especially i'm assuming you know in those days canvases were hard to get paint was hard to get all the resources were you know you're using probably expensive and or difficult to obtain materials to make something that isn't godly and beautiful and of the heavens or whatever it's interesting because the catholic church was super powerful when he was an artist. And so on one hand, he offended the Catholic Church. And on the other, they loved him. He would hang out with all these figures from the Catholic Church, from the Vatican world. They were interested in him. I don't really know why. Maybe because he presented a challenge. Maybe because he knew things about them that they were aware of. I don't I don't know. One component that I think is interesting, if Caravaggio was your client, is that he had a rap sheet. He had a series of crimes that they didn't have computers back then. But basically, (laughs) you could look at 1601, arrested for beating a guest of the cardinal with a club. It was super violent. So he's arrested for that. That's his rap An aggravated assault charge. There we go. 1603, jailed and sued for writing defamation, that'd be a civil suit. 1604, arrested for possession of illegal weapons, swords at the time. Oh, ooh, that's, it could, could even be a felon in possession charge. If you I mean, at this to- point, yeah. And this is just a few highlights from his rap sheet, by the way. <laughs> like, there's a lot of other things, but 1605, aggravated assault. I'm calling it that now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't called that then. Well, what did they say it was? Well, um, I like their, I like the like 1600s description of a charge in the way that we describe it. One of the things I read was like brutality against one of his models. Oh, that's like domestic, like domestic. Yeah. So he fucks up one of his models and it's debatable over whether it was a man or a woman, actually Mm -hmm. different accounts. 1606, he kills a guy, straight up kills a guy. But it is a duel over. We don't have those anymore. 
Yeah, those aren't allowed. Um, right. <laughs> I don't know the criminal, you know, I don't know the law of duels. Right. I don't think they exist really anywhere anymore. Yeah. Like in hard law, mm-hmm. <laughs> hard law system. I wonder what they were like back then though. Who knows? Because we're going to wait till you hear about how he would get out of these things. <laughs> um, I mean, he did do some jail time, but mm-hmm. not a lot. So he killed a guy who was the pimp of a prostitute that Caravaggio was in love with, who also was one of his main models. Wow. And in this duel, Caravaggio, from what I understand, devoted most of his attention to trying to cut off his dick. Oh, no. Like, while they were fighting. Oh, God. I looked into this a bit, too. If two men fought over a woman, a woman, mm-hmm. a woman, woman, <laughs> um, it was not unusual for one of them to try to cut the other one's dick off. Wow. But I mean, that would present a very clear winner at the end, you know, he stabbed him really, really close to his dick and maybe hit an artery. So the guy died. The reason this was um, a huge issue is because the guy he stabbed was a gangster of the times, but connected to an extremely wealthy family. So when the gangster died of this fatal wound near his groin, um, basically Caravaggio was like run out of town. Like he couldn't stay. So he left. He left Rome. The whole thing with the prostitutes interesting too because there are multiple stories about that. Yeah. And in fact, to talk about his art a little bit. Um, so was he making art during all this time? Oh, yeah. Was, yeah. The whole okay. time he's making art. She is depicted in his painting called um, Entombment of Christ. So that's one of his famous paintings. And she is presented as the woman like holding Christ's body. Mm -hmm. So he would do a lot of pieces that were biblical. I mean, it was super common, mythical or biblical. And she like he would he would put the actual faces of people that he knew on these faces of characters that were famous through the Bible or through mythology. Got it. So he was including using his own. People. Yeah, he was using real people to be uh, like actors for the biblical figures. Yeah. So all the faces in his paintings are faces of people that he interacted with in real life, and he would throw them on these faces of people that were famous characters before his time who maybe never existed. Mm-hmm. But that's an. So then, um, Do you think they felt like a sense of. I don't know. Do you think it made them feel a little bit famous when they were in his paintings? Of course. One thing I remember, because, you know, I did a whole grad school thing on writing (laughs) and nonfiction writing. And I remember one of my mentors said, a mentor I didn't actually connect with at all, but she said, you know, real people are going to show up in all our writing all the time. And the only people who are going to really mad at you are the ones who don't show up. Mm. So who knows how his characters reacted to seeing their faces in his paintings. But I mean, yeah, from what we know of Caravaggio so far, like he won't fucking care mm-hmm. like how anyone reacts because, okay. So he, to like talk about his character a bit more, he was um, a passionate painter, really talented 
but such a shit show of a human, like high drama, like stabbing people all the time, fighting with people, throwing things at people. Like it was a never ending thing with him. Right. Just like sit back and take in the world at all. He had to constantly just fuck with it over Mm -hmm. and over and over again. Like he had a death wish like every single day. Yeah. I mean, there's so many accounts of him assaulting people. Like I'm I'm talking about some of his charges for his charge list that we would consider if he was our client, but those are just a few of many. He was a mess. Um to bring it a back. A very talented mess. He was an orphan. Oh. He lost his parents. Big yeah. deal. So mitigation would play into that a lot because well, if you lose your parents from an early age and then you're just kind of tossed around in the world, that's going to fuck with you. Yeah, I think that you're kind of robbed in that sense of your very initial sense of belonging, which so much that starts with your parents and your family, you know, like that is, that's your first place where, you know, you're belong, you belong and you're, you know, there's no question about it that you are, if nothing else, you belong to your parents. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think if you are, you know, orphaned at a young age, especially during those formative years, then yeah, you've got to really, and not, I mean, not that it's, um, you know, insurmountable, but you've just got a hurdle that other people don't have. And so you just have to get through that. But if you don't have, you're not taught how to cope or you're not taught, you know, that it's okay, or even had any of that brought to your awareness of like, Hey, you might be feeling these ways because, you know, you don't have, two parents who are guiding you through life, telling you what's right and wrong and giving you a hug when you're sad and, you know, all those things. And that can make someone just angry. They're not being shaped in any direction. So here we have an example of someone who just takes off in a certain direction, learns how to make beautiful paintings in a way that like no one can do, Um, like on the streets just doing his own thing, fighting against everything, and yet still winning the attention of powerful figures because he's super talented. Mm -hmm. Um, However, he's like a hardcore criminal. Um, And a criminal in the sense that, like, the cards are stacked against him anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, It's so weird to imagine, like, what it would have been like in those days when no one can really, other than word of mouth, which I guess was probably maybe... I don't know if it was more robust than now, but like the the intertown or intercity communication couldn't have possibly been as good as it is now. So the idea that you could commit a crime somewhere else and just go to a new town and they would never know who you were or what you'd done. Like it's it's hard to imagine how many criminals probably just existed and just went over to the next town and, you know, no one knew who they were. Well, so this plays into his art as well. Um, when he killed that aristocratic gangster dude in Rome bad move on his part because basically he couldn't live there anymore um and he was charged with murder and with like the highest level of murder at that time Mm -hmm. and so he ran away and um the way they dealt with it legally like the way they were like okay so there's this like murder on the loose um he's an he's a painter this is what he looks like and whoever you know, this is like speaks back to the old days of legal justice systems. They were like, whoever can cut his head off <laughs> and bring it to us mm-hmm. in Rome gets a pr- like 
money price. Mm -hmm. So there was like, there was this value on him. So, and that's like old days shit. Right. It's like, kill this guy, cut his head off and bring it back to the Mm -hmm. place to prove to us that he's dead. So apparently this like inspired him to even go deeper in his art making about being beheaded, which I Mm -hmm. think, I mean... You don't even have to be an expert on Caravaggio to know that like severed heads is a big part of his art. Huge part. It's everywhere. That's what I think. Like those are the paintings that I think of when I think of Caravaggio. I think of like someone having their like neck cut open and like lying horizontally. Apparently, um, I mean, he did some of those, but after there was a price on his own head, his severed mm-hmm. head, he made way more. Yeah. Like it became an obsession. And those are some of his best paintings because he knew that a number of people would want to cut his own head off and bring Mm -hmm. it back. So he just kept painting versions of that with the faces of people that he would meet along the way. And he went down to like Naples, hung out there, got along with some people, somehow got knighted, became a knight, and then killed someone down there. And then they like had an issue with him. So then he's trying to run back up to Rome and he offers to, I don't even know how this is like communicated, but he offers artwork in exchange for being pardoned in Rome. And according to records that are held by the Vatican, they agreed to it. They said, okay, if you come back to Rome and give us all these paintings, then we'll pardon you and you're fine. But he died on his way up. And oh, that's how did he die? Sense. Did someone cut his head off? No, his body was found in like the sea, but um, there are a lot of theories. Like some people say he died of syphilis, which I think is bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, like an easy excuse for someone like him. Right. Um, the main one and the one that the Vatican holds records to, which, oh my God, imagine asking the Vatican for records <laughs> on a person. Um, They're probably like, uh, yeah, maybe we'll get to it. Maybe not. No, they just revealed these records like in early 2000 something, like 2004 or five. Um, according to the records they have with correspondences and so on, um, it was the knights that um, knighted him in southern Italy. He pissed them off. Mm-hmm. He fucked with one of their knights, maybe killed one of them, and then they killed him. And wow. that is that has the most records surrounding his death. But mm-hmm. there are still people who think that um, maybe he died of something else. Like he right. wasn't known for cleaning his wounds from fights. So some people think he just died from his wounds getting infected mm-hmm. and so on. But I mean, his body was found thrown out to sea. The Vatican says it was those nights, according to their records. And and this brings us to like that line of work that we do. We look for records and mm-hmm. the Vatican records, like how would we even deal with that? How truthful could they be? But I can't imagine what their records world looks i mean i can't think of any well there is probably there is no american institution that would have records that go back that far so it's crazy to imagine what records storage looks like for a place like the vatican or some other like how do you have records from it makes me want to work a case that involves going through records in italy because i'm like what i know i well i just are they letters between people storage looks like right He's guarding it. Talking boxes all throughout the city, like underground tunnels, 
of just like storage facilities that are holding like dec no not decades centuries and centuries of records but it's hard to even wrap my head around how you would like have all those records and then keep them safe for this long it's wild i guess it's nice to know mm -hmm. through this story that they're hanging on to records from 500 years ago yeah i love it although can we trust them probably trust those not. records why because they're i think like I an evil like organization back, i just think that back then history was written in different ways i think that I mean, I always think that, you know, there's that whole idea of like history's written by the winners and like, you know, the idea of probably protecting the church and its reputation was always paramount. So whatever records needed to say, they just would say them to protect the church. I think we still do that to an extent, but that's why I've always trusted like writers and artists more, you know, to reflect the truth of something that was going on rather than, you know, records sometimes. But I think there's, it's really fascinating that it's, at least it's like solid information of a date or, you know, when, when things happened for sure. But who knows? Right. It's some sort of records where other records don't exist. And I mean, now he's long dead, mm -hmm. but thinking of it, like if he was alive now with that history, which would look very different now, it is kind of fascinating to consider like how... I don't feel like I want to use the verb humanize him, but make sense of his actions. Like here's a talented person who depicts humans and human drama in a way that no one else can, but also kills people and throws shit at people. Like he yeah, is, like I would want to know so much about his life, you know, like what, how did he grow up? Like, was he in foster homes? Like who was his parents? Like, did he, you know, did he have money? Did he have any, where did he learn to paint how to even get into that world like there's That's, yeah i could see why you know i think that people who <laughs> a lot of people who have unsettled things in their heads like they find the outlets that make the most sense you know and for him the idea of you know painting these really gruesome scenes was probably a really great way for him to focus all of that like he clearly had a lot of like violent pent-up energy so the fact that he could sit down and focus to the degree of those paintings and the detail of those paintings that he could harness all of that and like put it into a pretty much perfect painting is pretty awesome. It is. And, and yeah, Oh, I was listening to this podcast just to do a shout out to another weird podcast. That's <laughs> about our history. I was listening to this podcast called Party Girls, spelled heard of it. lowercase p, uppercase A-R-T-Y, girls. Mm -hmm. All right. And apparently it's a guy in Portland and a woman in Tucson. And they are, um, okay, he knows nothing about our history and she knows a lot. Mm -hmm. So their podcast is based on her talking to him about our history and he doesn't know anything about it. He gets like wasted. <laughs> in the episodes that I listened to, he gets like so drunk <laughs> and she's kind of never drunk and like just telling him stuff. Mm -hmm. And she did an episode on Caravaggio and he keeps referring to Caravaggio as Garbaggio. <laughs> like as like, not like he just doesn't understand that it's a C like it's Caravaggio. 
And um, But that's also a funny insult. Yeah. And he is constantly connecting Caravaggio to being like Tupac or, you know, mm-hmm. some kind of rapper over and over again. And just someone who like fucks with the roles. And mm-hmm. anyway, this guy keeps looking at Garbaggio, a.k.a. Caravaggio, <laughs> as like a famous rapper um, and like correlating him to that, which I think is interesting because what would Caravaggio be in these days? I don't, I mean, it seemed I mean, like he had more of a hunger for crime than he even did for art. That's true. I don't know. I mean, he probably would have been one of those people that would have gotten like, you know, just blacklisted pretty quickly because he was a jerk. If he was going around like, being that way I, th- I think nowadays like in today's world like people wouldn't put up with that they'd be like yeah he's a talented i mean like we were talking about beforehand of like you know how we how we feel about Saul fletcher and how we feel about other people who have done so it's like now all of that is attached to your career or you know your output whereas i think back then those narratives were so they just weren't included. You just looked at the art, you know, in and of itself without considering their character for the most part. Or, I mean, I think just most people didn't really know that much about somebody, somebody's personal life. Um, or another thing is that I noticed that people who don't know a lot about art often think about artists as though they are crazy in a way, mm-hmm. like Caravaggio. Yeah, I think the whole, like, crazy, tortured, pompous, egotistical artist caricature is just not going to be it's not going to fly for much longer i hope you know but i think more people are kind of tuning into like yeah if you're going to act like that we're not going to have you around right i hope on one hand that no me too i also hope so and i also see that being the case and then on one hand i'm bummer because there are some people who are completely like off their rockers and erratic and make incredible work right yeah So I guess this ultimate episode is landing on the intersection of art and crime. And if you're too much of a messy criminal as an artist, no one's going to want to work with you anymore these days. No, it's just not going to happen. It could, you know, in the 1600s, that would fly. You could be Caravaggio and, you know, murder people and run around and mess with your models, whatever, but... None no more. I would love to see the court documents about all his charges. Oh, yeah. I wonder were if it's possible argued. to get those. I wonder if they have them on each individual charge still. They have to. It's just a matter of contacting the people who have them and would be a mess. It'd be a process. And imagine like who was a lawyer appointed to him? Did he have like a public defender of Italy or who? Who knows? Who represented him? God, could you imagine being the records clerk and getting that getting that request in where someone is asking for records from like 1617 or I would be excited. And you're like, yes, I'd be like, I get to go back to the box of, you know, like whatever those records, they've got to be gorgeous. I would say, oh my God, finally the day has come where I get to look for records that I want to look for. But yeah, I guess um, I thought for a final episode of this season of art and crime based stuff. Mm-hmm. Like why not talk about an artist who was also a criminal? Love that. And who would bargain his art to get out of charges and successfully. Oh. He did so do he, that. who would he give it to? Or who would he he would trade um, it? so when he was going to Rome, mm-hmm. like on like before he got killed, he requested a pardon for all of his charges in Rome. 
in exchange for art. And the people in charge were Vatican peoples. So Mm -hmm. they were like, granted, like we get all these paintings. Your charges are clear. Your record's clear. So he died on his way back up. To give them the artwork that he was going to give them. Right. The weird thing about Caravaggio is like, he didn't really sign his work. Um, Hmm. For a reason? Or he just didn't? I think because he was just this wild child who was not thinking about signatures or something. I don't know. I mean, his work now goes for an insane amount of money and is a part of major museum collections. So people have original Caravaggio's, but um, even in his time, really important people recognize the value of his work and the continuing value of his work after he would die to the point where they would pardon him. That's so crazy. He handed off. I mean, that's kind of like the equivalent of, you know, famous people getting out of charges or, you know, like famous actors, like if they get put in jail, they're in a special part of jail that isn't as bad as everyone else. You know, it's like the idea that you can just give the Vatican some of your paintings and then they'll release you. And crazy that a lot of his paintings are of like severed heads connected to biblical stories and they wanted those. Right. Yeah. They're like, give me all your fucked up artwork about stuff that you've probably done. And these paintings could even be taken from real life. Who knows? (laughs) We'll take those and you can be on your merry way. Mm -hmm. Who knows what would have happened if he actually arrived in Rome, but he didn't. He died along the way. That's true. Yeah. We don't really know how it would have ended. He could have given them paintings and then they hung him or something. I don't know what the punishments were back then, but I think they wanted him to be alive. Hmm. Yeah. Like he gave their stories that they were so invested in, like a certain twist that maybe they were craving at the time. Like maybe they were tired. Needed they they constantly needed new imagery. Maybe not constantly, but new imagery for all those old, very old stories was probably refreshing. Yeah. And inspiring for a lot of people. To end, like, when you think of Caravaggio, what painting or image, it doesn't even have to be a specific painting, like, what image comes to mind? For me, there are a couple. One of them is um, the woman cutting off. It's uh, Artemisia Genileschi did a version of it, too. And it's like the, the, I can't remember her name. It's a Greek, you know, based off Greek gods, and she's cutting the head off of it starts with an h it's like holifer or something oh i know what you're talking holiferous about. i can't remember the name i'm not good at greek mythology you're um, um you're talking about this is the one that has his judith it's like judith slaying no this is the one that it's uh judith beheading holifernes i believe something yeah it's i think that's i mean i'm i think i'm mispronouncing Holofernes, because maybe it's like Holofernes. Yeah, and then he had the one in the. Isn't there someone in a bathtub? Or like this? There's that one is a bath that has a bathtub scene involved. Oh, is that one it? Okay, yeah. And then there's like David with the head of Goliath. That one's super Mm -hmm. dramatic. Also, of course, like one I think that we associate with him more than anything is head of Medusa. Yes, yeah, which is amazing. I mean, oh, so I, many, I remember seeing like his work for the first time and thinking it was, it was immediately like very appealing to me because it was so different from, you know, as we, I mean, I guess it was, I probably learned of his work in art history class, but, you know, as we were going through 
he truly was very, very different at the time that he came along and like how dark and gloomy and shadowy his paintings were. It was just so dramatic in a really, really awesome way. I know. I still like that. I mean, it's, I hate that he's clearly a highly dysfunctional, violent murderer, but (laughs) I I mean, I think maybe the same qualities that made him really a great artist of his time are the same ones that fed into his total dysfunction Mm -hmm. as a member of society. Yeah. But it seems like it kind of worked out for him. Um, I mean, he did die at a young age, but Mm -hmm. you don't really picture Caravaggio being, he died at the age of 38. Oh, wow. Yeah, but I can't really picture him being like 80. I can't picture him like settling into the older years in a calm way. And I mean, I want to say he just really wasn't as high back then. Right. You know, like dying at 38 probably wasn't that. That's like old age. I know. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. It's probably more of a normal time to die. (laughs) Right. I love that. I didn't know. I definitely did not know that he had that uh, crazy of a rap sheet. Crazy rap sheet. Mm-hmm. You really interesting mitigation case. I know. So much to dig into there. Well, thank you. My pleasure. Thanks, thanks for schooling us on Garbaggio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So this is, so we're concluding season two. This was sad. Oh, it was a good, dude, this season has just we have been through so much on this one so i am just glad that we made it through it's been a crazy year i know i'm proud of us for i know um, (laughs) through the apocalypse exactly for sure yeah all right you guys well our podcast is brought to you by we own this town which is still and forever the greatest podcast company network. What, what is this network in Nashville? I like network all the town and company. And all yeah. The world. yeah, we love that place. And then our music, our theme music is by Patrick Dampier, mm-hmm. who is amazing and just came out with a new album, apparently, if I am reading Instagram correctly. <laughs> nice. Yes, yeah, so check and, that out. And our artwork is by Saskia Kolges. And is there anything else? <laughs> and this microphone is brought to you by Toner. <laughs> this microphone, Audio Technica. And this beer is brought to you by Black Abbey Brewing. And this water is brought to you by Filtered Water in New Orleans. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody. Bye.